I just feel stuck. I feel like I'm like putting so much energy into something and it's just like, and you kind of just know, right? You know, it's like something's off. All my pivotal moments are about rejection. (laughs) You know, like the things that the world just doesn't, doesn't give you the way that you want (laughs) the way that you had like hoped it would be it's always in those moments of rejection that you kind of end up finding the thing that's like more authentically true to you and that was certainly the case for me when i got rejected hello and welcome to real life pivotal moment the best place for you to listen learn and grow from people's stories and their pivotal moments in their life I am super excited because today's guest is Kimberly Ang. She's the CEO of Kaya Climbing, ex-ideal professional. She's a very good friend of mine, a sunshine, a loving soul, and a badass climber. And I'm super excited for the audience to get to know Kimberly. Kim, hey, thanks for joining the podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Luke. Yeah. Hey, Kim, um, you know, we have known each other during my time in Silicon Valley. Obviously, you, Hamish, um, one of my close friends in Silicon Valley, is your boyfriend. And, you know, we had incredible time. But I always loved your passion for climbing. Like your videos, if you guys haven't checked out her Instagram, is full of climbing. And it's, it's, it's just been mind blowing to me how you have been able to master all those skills and found climbing as your passion. We started at a gym called Vertical Hold in San Diego and Hamish and I and our friend Chris would go maybe like once a week to this climbing gym. And I just found the time to be like really, really healing. Sometimes Hamish and I would be, you know, like in the middle of something, maybe we would have like a little bit of tension or I'm stressed about a class or something like this. And then there was kind of this magical experience that would happen. We'd go climbing And then like all the stress would just go away. (laughs) Uh, You know, like this kind of magical reset, almost like having a good meal where it's like you can go in frustrated, (laughs) but you never leave upset. (laughs) And that's what climbing was for me. And so I knew that it was something that was like just healing in this very holistic way, like body, mind, soul. I just like, it felt right you know? And I really enjoyed like the challenge of the movement, like climbing is like a problem solving focused sport. Every route is about a problem and it's a puzzle how you get yourself up to the top and kind of solve the problem. And I really enjoyed that kind of like analytical problem solving nature of it. And then I spent a couple years not climbing after college. Um, I went, uh, I spent about a year traveling the world with some friends, working a nonprofit. And then uh, I went to grad school in Chicago. um, And where I was living in Chicago, there was no climbing gym and there was definitely no like outdoor rock climbing. (laughs) Chicago's Midwest plains, it's pretty flat. So I kind of had like a hiatus from climbing. And then I moved back to the Bay Area after grad school. um, And I was working in the Bay, not in tech, um, which is kind of hard to do. If you live in the Bay and you don't work in the tech industry, you feel a little bit lost oftentimes, I think, like financially, um, yeah, the economic side of it, just like the professional industry side of it um, felt quite disconnected. And I actually really didn't like San Francisco. I was pretty unhappy. And so I did like a New Year's resolution where I was like, what can I do? What can I like try to like jumpstart my life to like get excited and get engaged. And I made a new year's resolution to join the climbing gym, which was like a few blocks from our house. 
got a membership and I just went all in, you know, uh, <laughs> I found like my love for climbing again. I found a community within the gym. I started feeling like it was helping me kind of like put roots into the Bay area, find new friends, you know, take trips that I was excited about. And I just kind of like found an energy with it. When you are moving to a new city or a new place, it's really hard to find a new community. I love that you have taken the initiative to really think about what has given me energy in the past. What do I really love doing? And then just deciding for yourself that you love climbing and really go into climbing. And that's where you created this new community and which eventually lets you to become who you are today, the CEO of a climbing company. And <laughs> And that's that's truly, truly amazing. You said that you were pretty unhappy in, in San Francisco. Was climbing the activity that you took as a result of your unhappiness? Climbing definitely was a big part of my like, what am I going to try to make this work? <laughs> Hamish was not struggling in San Francisco the way that I was. He had a friend group. He had like all of these people from work. He had everyone he wanted to party with, everyone he wanted to hang out with. He had the chinchillas, you know, he, which is like their soccer group. They do everything together. He was really fitting in. And then I showed up and I was like an outsider and I felt it, you know, I mean, and I think a lot of it was probably in my head too, but I felt different. And I knew that I needed to like, kind of try to carve out something for myself where I was like, this is more mine, you know? Um, and so Yeah, that was my New Year's resolution to try and see if climbing could be that thing for me, like mental, physical, social um, healing. And it totally was. How did you approach your New Year's resolution? I knew I was unhappy and I get unhappy. You know, like I have experienced several different bouts of depression over the course of my like teenage to adulthood. So it happens to me. I was working constantly at a job that wasn't like giving a lot back to me. I had a lot that I was like, I think I was like trying to prove. I was fresh out of grad school. I was like, I'm making my career. I'm like, I was just working around the clock and it didn't feel good. And I looked at how I felt in the last few years compared to my first year in San Francisco. And I felt like, you know, the year of like graduating from college, traveling, going to grad school, I felt this really significant growth every year. I was like, I'm evolving a lot as a person. And then I looked at the chapter that I'd had in San Francisco so far. And I was like, I'm not like, I just feel stuck. I feel like I'm like putting so much energy into something and it's just like, Ugh. and you kind of just know, right. You know, it's like something's off. And so every year we do a lot of goal setting, Hamish and I and our friend group, we have like an annual tradition around goal setting that started. We do like an annual end of year retreat somewhere around college or after college. One of the kind of founders of the group, our friend Chris, started this like goal setting exercise where we would each kind of look at different categories of our life, whether it's like professional, relationship, you know, spiritual, physical goals, et cetera. And you would openly like declare your goals to the group. Probably as like 20-somethings, it's, it's young 20-somethings. It's a rarish type of thing to like share with your friends, like these are my goals. <laughs> And like, please hold me accountable to these. Uh, but that was what we did. <laughs> we were in that kind of mode of like, 
trying to articulate how we wanted our lives to evolve. And climbing was a part of that for me. Wow, this is so beautiful. Hey, man, I'm so happy to hear that. And actually, it really warms my heart to have have friends in, you know, in your early 20s who are thinking about, you know, hey, and helping you actually become that person you want to become. How did you keep you guys accountable? There was a mid-year check-in where all of the goals that had been like entered into a group spreadsheet was like shared back and like people could weigh in like progress on their goals. And then there was the next year where we would revisit what were the goals I had last year and kind of like highlights or low lights, you know, or how the how goals have shifted, which they always do. You know, you set a goal and you realize it's not even the right goal. So we did we did that. And I think it was just sort of like these like little moments of practice. And then it also gave you sort of like a framework of like when you're checking in with your friends throughout the year, you give them a call or like you see them, you ask like, oh, how's this going? I know this is big for you this year. <laughs> and sometimes it's like more intentional and sometimes you just see the threads um, in your conversations with them. I applied to the Fulbright scholarship for like research grant. And then I applied to one interdisciplinary master's program that I was kind of like, it was a little bit of like the odd one out where I was like, I don't really know what this path would be, but it gives me more options than just doubling down in history. It was like moving from history into any type of social science. So then I would say my pivotal moment graduating college was that I was rejected from the Fulbright. I was rejected from all of the PhD programs in history. And then miraculously got into this master's program at U Chicago and they gave me a full ride. And it was like, of all of these things, the master's was obviously the best option that was like presented to me. But the pivotal moment for sure was rejection. All my pivotal moments are about rejection. <laughs> you know, like the things that the world just doesn't, doesn't give you the way that you want <laughs> the way that you had like hoped it would be. I remember like I had made it into the final full bite round, which was like, you know, you make it through the first wave and they're like selecting from the finalists who are the like three people we're going to give this to for this category. And I was in the final round. It was like already spring, you know, of like senior year graduating. And then I, I didn't get it. And I was just so fucking sad. <laughs> I was so devastated, like Fulbright represented, I think something for me where it has this like kind of glowy brand where it's like, oh, if you make it to Fulbright, you're a Fulbright scholar for your whole life. And you get to like carry that around. I think I've always wished to had some of this stuff that you're like, oh, you, you know, like, oh, you went to Harvard, you're an Ivy Leaguer, you're a Fulbrighter, you're a blah, 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 blah. And the world just doesn't want to give me those things. <laughs> But it's always in those moments of rejection that you kind of end up finding the thing that's like more authentically true to you. And that was certainly the case for me when I got rejected from that scholarship. That created the space for me to think a lot more creatively about what I wanted to do in the next year. So then like, if I wasn't doing that thing, which I thought I was going to do, or at least hoped I was going to do, what am I going to do? And that opened up this space for me to start having conversations with my friends and like, well, what are you doing next year? <laughs> I love that the, the, the idea of that pivot to moments feel so devastating and beaten in the moment. But looking back, they start to make sense of what they are today for us. 
What I love what you said, and I want to dive a little bit deeper on what you just shared previously, is that all your pivoted moments were somehow associated with rejection. And I love it because what I've learned in my life is that rejection happens based on the perspective you are taking in. I give you an example. And it's hard when you are in San Francisco or in the US in a culture where once you graduate from college and everyone is seeking the best university, Harvard, Stanford, and whatever, or you're in San Francisco, everyone works in tech, everyone makes six-figure salaries. And so your perspective and your expectations become to a certain point. Oh, I want to go into Stanford. I want to go into Harvard. I want to be in Facebook. I want to be in LinkedIn or whatever. And if you don't make it in those college, then you feel rejected and then you feel devastated. But it's it's the perception and the expectations you set yourself that led to the rejection in the first place. So my question is, how do you think or how do you feel has your environment and your perspective led to you feeling those rejection and pivotal moments? For sure, I come from a culture of like super high expectations. So, you know, like I moved around a lot when I was a kid, but I would say the most influential cultural kind of upbringing for me was in the South Bay of the Bay Area. South Bay is like Cupertino, Saratoga, uh, San Jose, like, um, first of all, a lot of Asian immigrant families who are all pushing, pushing, pushing because of how much their families have sacrificed to come to the United States, how much they want their kids to succeed and how deeply that is tied into um, the feeling of like, was this worth it for me to, you know, give up so much of my life as an my parents, you know, to take this massive leap, come out here to try and give your kids like a better education, a better economic future, um, you know, and there are like specific things that a lot of parents are looking for that make them say, okay, I did it. It was worth it. Or like now my kid is successful. And those things are typically getting into an Ivy League or getting into Berkeley or UCLA. And then maybe like going to McKinsey and like doing a big four consulting or Google or Facebook or whatever, like that. It's just, there is a cultural thing there that if you're looking to have something that's like, I did it, I, or like my kid did it and they were successful. It's easy to ascribe success to those like certain types of like badges that you get to wear. But then the truth is like, not everybody gets to wear those badges. So like what happens to your story if it doesn't fit into these like molds? Where do you get to like find yourself? In terms of like my travels and like going to all these different places and changing and kind of widening my perspective, I don't think I had the same types of like revelations that many people have on their travels where it's just like, oh, now I see everything that I didn't appreciate before or something. But what I gained was a sense of self-confidence that I could kind of be who I was and connect to people from almost anywhere. And I could form like what felt like a, a, a real relationship to understand what motivated them as a person, what brought them to where they were. And it made me feel deeply connected to the world in some way. I felt like more of my identity and kind of what I valued as I navigated my life was the ability to kind of like 
go anywhere, be placed in almost any situation and be myself and feel confident about that, that I had something to offer and that I was good at figuring out what other people had to offer and that we could form a relationship and connect on that level. When I moved back to San Francisco, I didn't feel that, right? So it's like you kind of come to these moments of confidence and then there are other moments where you lose it, but you know that you had it at some point (laughs) and you're like, what do I do? I need to get back here, you know, like figure out what to kind of shift in your life to come back to that feeling of a little bit more self-assuredness, a little bit more feeling of belonging, a little bit more feeling of like you can be yourself. Why do you feel you couldn't be that person in San Francisco? When I was in San Francisco, I had similar difficulties because I feel like it's incredibly competitive. It's incredibly work-related. It's incredibly focused on grinding, making, hustling. And I felt like everyone was identifying themselves as what they became or the profession they were doing, right? The mask they put on every day that became the identity. So I really had a hard time to get to know people deeply on who they are at their core because everyone was used to play that role. They would or that putting up that mask they would put up at work. And so was did you feel similar in San Francisco? Was that was that one of the reasons why you felt maybe an, even intimidated or, you know, um, a loss of connection with people or was it different for you? No, I think those things definitely ring true for me. I'd come from an environment in by from traveling and from grad school where one of the kind of like signature characteristics is curiosity like deep intellectual curiosity. You want to, like when you're traveling, all you want to do is like learn (laughs) about like the place and the people and the stories, you know? And in, in grad school, you're also in a moment of like, I'm here to learn. I want to examine this rigorously. Like, let's get deeper into that question. Let's ask like three harder questions about that. That curiosity could be the thing that connected you to other people, even if your topics were actually quite different. You know, what am I curious about? What are you curious about? It doesn't really matter. You can still have an interesting conversation (laughs) about those things. And when I first moved to SF, I didn't feel that sense of like mutual curiosity. I did feel a sense of like, what do you do? But I think that was also just like looking, you know, it takes time to find your little niches, to find, you know, like-minded people. And for me, I found that within climbing, you know, or like from climbing and then beyond, right? Climbing kind of gave me like a space where I'm like, okay, like I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> Don't freak out. Like you're okay. You're a normal person. Everything's fine. <laughs> you know, for a while I was like, is it me? <laughs> have I lost the ability to like connect to people? Like, have I like stopped figuring out how to have like meaningful conversations or something? And climbing gave me back some of that confidence and then I was able to go back to a lot of friends that like I didn't even feel like I could relate to before and then come back to those relationships in kind of a different state of mind. I want to touch base on two things because I think there's so many value in it. The first thing you mentioned was curiosity. I always see that every person has its own world. Curiosity starts when I'm trying to be a guest in your world and understand what is going on in your world, what's the culture, what's the status, and how are different things shaped. I'm just curious about how your world ecosystem is functioning. That's curiosity for me. Whereas in some parts, what I experienced in San Francisco, the curiosity was more wired on what can I take from your world that would benefit my own world. So it didn't come from a place of curiosity about you as a person. It came from a selfish intent 
to see what's in for me, a transactional piece. That's what I experienced. And the second thing that I, that I really love what you just mentioned as a side note was that you felt moments where you ask yourself, is something wrong with me? I give you an example. In Germany, it's a no-go to work on weekends. It's an absolute no-go. If I'm going to email someone on the weekends, people would think I'm a workaholic, I'm a freak or whatever. So no one would do that. It's an absolute taboo. So out of 10, one out of 10 people would do that and you would call them a douchebag or someone who doesn't know, has no work-life balance. In Silicon Valley, it's the other way around. Nine out of 10 people, you know, are still on their phone, are still emailing back and forth. And you all of a sudden became this person who is not diligent, who is not hardworking, who is not committed to the vision of the company. So all of a sudden, I'm feeling like, wow, hey, am I, is something wrong with me here? And it's so interesting because that just outlines your story in terms of what the environment can make us believe if we fit in or not fit in based on the values that we are being exposed to, right? Yeah, totally. I think that question of like, is it me? Is one of the most like important kind of signals for me that something's off <laughs> mm-hmm. and that something needs to change. Appropriately examine like, what am I bringing to the situation that makes it challenging? You know, is is it me that's actually presenting as unrelatable or standoffish because of my own insecurities, right? Like, but to me, when I start kind of getting to that place of like, is it me? The imposter syndrome type of questioning where you doubt yourself. I know those, that's when it's like, okay, something is wrong. I need to change something about my situation, how I'm in my situation or like, remove myself from the situation entirely. (laughs) You know, once you start to get to that self-doubt, questioning who you are, questioning your capabilities, to me, that's kind of the trigger of like, something's got to change. And how do you approach that? I mean, many people have this moment where they felt feel like, oh, you know, something's wrong with me or something's not adding up. And I feel we, we have the tendency to blame the environment the same way we are unconsciously doing, oh, San Francisco, San Francisco, right? Whereas San Francisco is out of my control. The only thing I can control is how I react to this behavior or this environment. And so when you feel like something is out of alignment, how would you approach it? Like, how do you reflect on yourself and how do you get it back into alignment? And I do think it's important and like fair to yourself to to try to honestly examine the question of like, is it me? <laughs> I think one thing that I'm like very lucky to have is these like deep relationships with people I can trust who can help me navigate that question honestly. There were a lot of conversations with my friends where I was like, I think it might be me. I, I don't know. Maybe I can't live in San Francisco. Maybe I can't blah, 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 blah. But also, is it just me? Am I the asshole potentially? <laughs> you know, like for me coming from uh, this environment of like intellectual curiosity and like coming to SF, they were like living a good life and I couldn't plug in in some way. I like, couldn't relate to the things that they did. Like something about me, for example, is like, I don't drink. Um, and Uh, unsurprisingly, a lot of like hanging out and social culture when you're a young 20 something in the States is around drinking. And I felt really insecure in a lot of social situations. I felt really left out. Like every time there would be a moment at a party that's like, do you want a shot? And I'd be like, oh, no. (laughs) You know, like I started like just so much like doubts, so much like, okay, everyone must think like, I am not here to have fun. 
there was, there was a lot that was going on from the me perspective. And the thing about what I found in climbing was that it was like a good and positive energy for me to give into and build back up and feel um, something I could feel confident about doing. And not just like, oh, because it's easy. For me, my confidence comes from like when I take on challenges and I like can overcome those challenges. And that's why like, I love climbing so much. <laughs> you know, you get to do things every time where you're like, eh, I don't know, I can do that. Like, that's the best feeling for me is like looking at something, thinking that you cannot do it. And then figuring out that like, oh, you, you, you totally can <laughs> with enough, like enough, try hard, enough training, enough, whatever, like that's the thing that gives me my confidence. And so then I would go back to the same types of social situations where nothing had changed, but me and found this like totally different type of experience. Like certainly want to like clarify, it's like, I don't think there's like, there's just like pervasive toxicity within all of San Francisco or like all the people or like whatever. I do think that a lot of it was how I was interacting in that space and the insecurities that I had and like figuring out how to like address them and build back more of my own personal confidence and coming back to those you know, same types of situations and being able to relate to people completely differently. Many Asian parents, and I, I'm talking for myself right now, they came from poverty. They've sacrificed so much, right? And they have such high expectations. And even my parents or me as well, my parents did not make a secret out of the fact that they sacrificed a lot for me. Mm -hmm. And they praised me for things that worked to their favor and their expectation. And they told me off when I was doing something that was not aligned with the values or how they saw my life pro progressing. Yeah. And it left a huge mark on me. It's a huge burden to have as a child to carry out all the sacrifices your parents do for you. Yeah. And I found for myself that this was one of the reasons I was constantly hustling, constantly trying to achieve because at the end of the day, I was so focusing on pleasing or meeting the expectations my parents had for me. Or even if I was not, I mean, I've been programmed that way for so many years and unconsciously I was just trying to prove something. I don't even know to who, but I just really wanted to achieve something, maybe to feel worthy or be, or maybe because I was so used to getting the, the praises. I'm, I'm just curious, how, how do you think has your relationship with your parents and the, the pressure and the expectations on you shaped all the depression you have had in your pivotal moments and all the rejection you felt? How has your relationship with your parents impacted how you live your life today? What you're saying definitely like resonates, right? For myself and then also I know for like a lot of other Asian people that I grew up with or have met along, you know, like uh, a lot of us are still trying to kind of chase like how do I make my parents proud? How do I make them feel like everything that they've done is worth it? And that definitely exists for me. But at some point, and, and, and it certainly drove a lot of like the feelings of like pain or unworthiness, like, you know, first rejection, not getting into calories, CLA, you know, second rejection, not getting this like Fulbright, which like, I don't even know whether my parents would call that like a, oh, you did it or you know, whatever, but like, it felt like big. <laughs> 
So it's like there have been many periods of those rejections for sure. There are definitely these threads in my life of like why I feel like I failed or I feel like I'm not enough that are related to a desire to like make my parents proud. But I also feel like there's been several inflection moments in my life where I've started to claim for myself, what do I want? I think for certain for my mom, like she wants us to be happy and there's different ways we can do that. I mean, my younger sister's an actress. <laughs> we have non-traditional paths. She's like accepted that. She's embraced it. She's, she's in for the ride. <laughs> but I think you have to drive that somewhat because their narrative of what success looks like is narrow. And our narrative of what success looks like in the context of the world that we live in and our generation is much more nuanced. And so you have to kind of claim at some point that you are going to chart your own path. Defining success is up to you. <laughs> and I think that, yeah, after several goes, I've probably come to accept that now. I mean, my mom definitely is like a, probably a little bit confused about why I'm the CEO of Climate Company. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. That's so funny. But she's also proud. Yeah. You know, you know, what I love what you said is, you know, obviously our parents love us, right? And all they wish for us is for us to be happy. But here's the tricky part is they wish for us to be happy. They fail to have the empathy or curiosity to understand what their child needs in order to be happy. The happiness they wish for the child is based on how they define happiness. And for most Asian parents, success equals happiness. So in order for my child to be happy, my child needs to be successful. So the expectations of the child needing to be successful all of a sudden becomes the metric for the child, in this case, you and me, for happiness. For me, like my entire life, I really believed I have to be successful in order to be happy. So even if I had the most fulfilling friendships, I had the most amazing girlfriend, I had a roof over my head. I had abundance amount of money in a certain way. I felt incredibly unhappy because I just didn't feel successful. I still felt rejected. I was comparing myself to other people. My parents were comparing me to their younger self or comparing me to my cousins and all this stuff. So the idea of what metric do you measure your success can really define your happiness. And I just came across a story which I wanted to share with you, which is very, very inspiring. There was a person before Metallica turned into Metallica, before they launched their first album, there was one of the band crew they kicked out of the band just before they took off. And this band member was incredibly devastated and was so committed for revenge. He was thinking, I'm going to form an even better band and be more successful than the band I left. And so he was working his ass off and eventually he became one of the most successful Metallica bands worldwide, right? But unfortunately, the band he left was Metallica. So Metallica turned out to be obviously more successful than his band, even though he was making over 300 million US dollars, was incredibly famous and successful. But because of his metric for success being in order for me, success means I need to be better than Metallica essentially led for him, despite all the fame and the success he gained, feeling completely unfulfilled and feeling like a failure because his metric was just different. I'm curious about your story, how this idea of your parents wanting you to be happy, setting a metric for yourself of happiness has shaped your definition or metric for success. 
And how is that linked to the depression you have felt in your past? My depression comes and goes a little bit out of my control. <laughs> But in terms of defining what I like, want my life to look like. So my parents, they're both doctors and uh, they hustled super hard. I think I saw them with like work and also how successful you are financially is not necessarily the thing that determines like a healthy, happy life. I think like from my experiences with my family, I quickly was able to identify that like the health of your, the, your relationships with the people that you are closest with in your life are the things that are most determining of your feeling of happiness. <laughs> you know, do you have close, deep, healthy connections with the people around you? Are you there for them? Are they there for you? Do you have the time in your life to be present in those relationships? Do you have like the mind space in your life to be present in those relationships? And then also, yes, I'm very driven. And I do, I am ambitious on a wide variety of things, whether it's like physical pursuit or adventure pursuit or career, like, and I need to be pushing to feel fulfilled. But I think when everything else goes, the thing that stays is your relationships with people. Like career chapters come and go. But the thing that's like stayed, the thing that stays with me across all of that is your relationships with your family and your friends. You know, when Hamish and I got together, which was senior year of high school, I think we were 17. That was kind of a moment where we actually decided like on principle, here are the things that are important to me, like about this relationship, you know, um, how we wanted to be there for each other, that we would principally treat each other as friends more importantly, even than sometimes we would treat each other as like romantic partners of like a friend with the idea being that like a friendship is something that can last beyond like, you know, we're 17, maybe the flame fades out, but will we treat each other the way you would treat a friend? And then turns out our flame has not flamed out. <laughs> And here we are 15 years later, but that those were the kind of principles that were like important to us to establish. So, you know, I think that's more important to me when I ask, like, am I successful? Am I? The answer to that question is usually like, well, what's the status of my relationships with people? What I always find fascinating about the two of you is you're truly happy and it's so easy to be around you and you just really enjoy your life, right? Sometimes you, I, I feel, I often see myself and look at the life of my friends and often think like, oh man, why, why do I make my life so hard? Right. And when I look at you and Hamish so often, it's just like, you're just really chill. You're just enjoying the life. You're enjoying the little things, you know, just, just going and, and enjoying your food and really being present. And what I'm very curious about is this idea of, we all know that our relationships the ones that really gives us energy, the quality of our relationship really determines the quality of our life. But somehow, as you know, we most of our days we spend on autopilot. So we get sucked into the work. Most of our hours per day are dedicated to work. And so we get so into this tunnel view, right? And get so sucked into work and get our emotions so deeply connected with the work that we lose the connection to what's really important, which is our relationship. And that has caused me a lot of stress. That has caused me to be completely unpresent, doubting myself, feeling shitty, um, having troubles, feeling happy. 
although I had incredible relationships. And you as a CEO of a, of a company, having incredible friends, as I know, how do you, what practices do you have to zone out in the moments where you feel stressed or you feel sucked into work and really reminding yourself what's important and, and kind of get grounded in the relationships you have? I think that happens to everyone, you know, of this, like, there are things you know, and then there's the way your life is going. <laughs> And like, that's how I would describe that like first chapter in San Francisco too. Just like things I know about how I want to have my life. And yet here I see my life and it isn't that way. So like what's happening here. And I think it's less like, less about like never get there because I think everybody gets there and more question of how do you identify that? How do you see it? And then how do you begin to kind of like extricate yourself from whatever seems to have like happened <laughs> to where you really want to be. For me, there's a few different things that are critical. The first is having these people in your life who are willing to tell you you are lost <laughs> and to hear it straight, you know, because sometimes you don't have the self-awareness. You might know it's wrong. I really love that you have friends you set resolutions with. I love that you have friends who remind you of what's important in your life reminds you when you get lost or in a different path to say like, hey, Kim, is this really the path you want to in? Is this really something you want to be? It's worth being stressed about and just really help you shift your perspective. That's such so much value in having those relationships. Totally. So lucky for sure. Like I'm kind of getting a little teary thinking about that and just like how much of a privilege it is to have friends who will say it's time it's time for you to kind of have a new chapter of some kind. We've been talking about the same things, the same frustrations for like a while. So like it's time, you know? So I think that's like one. And then the second is to like actually put yourself actively in these situations where you have to deeply examine or like take a perspective shift. Like travel, I think is an easy one, but travel tends to be something that helps you like break out of your whatever like thing you're like stuck in and be like, oh, life is like completely different in this other place, which reminds you that your life can be completely different should you choose for it to be. But even, you know, if you don't have the access to travel, which we haven't had this year, for me, like being out in nature is a huge healing thing for me. You know, I've talked about that thread of like when I started to go out camping and like just like physically being small physically being in these places where like you see, you know, the trees that have been near, the mountains that have been near, the lakes that have been here for like a lot longer than your life has been in existence, you know, to like take that in, like that helps me a lot, which is why like it's, you know, moving out here and being able to like walk out of our house and like go on a hike and be in the trees like immediately has been like a huge shift of like how I kind of get more perspective and like take it a couple notches down and breathe a little bit at the end of the day, you know? And it's a constant in progress. Like, it's not like I'm like, I've got it. <laughs> like it's an up and down. You mapped it out so beautifully. You outlined three things. The first thing, having friends, incredible friends who are just brutally honest to you saying, hey, this is probably not the person you want to be. This is probably not the direction you want to go. The second one is just getting out of your current environment, whether it's leaving the country or going some, somewhere else where you just gain different perspective. And the third thing is what I call cut out the noises, going into nature, 
What do you think are two or three things the audience can take away from what you have learned, what you have shared so far in this episode? Thing number one is that rejection tends to be the universe speaking to you in some way. <laughs> the thing that you thought, the thing you were fixated on, it's maybe just not the thing, you know? Embrace and be excited about what it could mean. Um, the second, I would say, is to like follow the good energy. <laughs> so, you know, all these like times where it's like, this isn't right or um, life isn't going where you want it to go or you find yourself stuck of like the thing for me that gets me unstuck is to put more into the place where I'm getting the good vibes. <laughs> where does it feel right? And to just like lean more into the things that feel right and that those will sort of like take you to a place that is more right. And I think that's how it's felt for me, like with climbing, with all of these like dark moments that are like things don't feel right. And I know this thing does. So if I do this, can I like find more of myself from this? So can we just follow that and see the kind of life that gets shaped when you build it off of like a foundation that just like feels good? It's a very nice ending to this episode, what you've just shared. The first learning to be being that rejection might feel really devastating and beaten in the moment, but it's a critical pivotal moment for you to lead you to the right direction. And the second one being following the good vibes, even if everything is dark, try to spot the lights and go towards the light. And with following the light, more light will open up for you. I love those two learnings. These are beautiful. And, and a fun fact for the end, I remember when I was in Germany, I was working at, at a Fortune 500 company in a, in a very good role that I really did not enjoy being in. And when I left that company, I had a job interview. I was incredibly qualified in, and it was the perfect job for me. It would give me the money, give me the car. I would could still be in my relationship, be in the environment that I enjoy being in. And my life would be perfect. I would be the happiest person in life. And I end up not getting the job. And that actually led me to move to Silicon Valley. So if I would have gotten the job, I would have never gotten to know you. I've never gotten through the whole Silicon Valley journey that eventually turned out to be a better one that you know I could have ever imagined. Whenever we feel rejection, it feels painful in the moment. But when we look back, we realize it's probably the best thing that it could have that happened to us. And I love that. Kim, you're so amazing. Thank you for, you know, taking your time to share bits of your life and your wisdom. Thank you for having me for this conversation. I hope there's something in there that feels helpful for somebody and it's lovely to get to talk to you. Hey, thank you so much for listening. It would mean the world to me if you take just one minute to leave a review and comment if you haven't done so. It helps the podcast grow and improve. I always love to connect personally with my audience to learn more about your story. So please feel free to shoot me an email at lukewshu at gmail.com. It's lukewshu at gmail.com. I appreciate your time and investment and can't wait for you to join us in the next upcoming episode.